If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. Tonight, I talk to Moises Serrano, an undocumented immigrant and gay man living in rural North Carolina, who was profiled in a new documentary, Forbidden, Undocumented and Queer in Rural America. And we'll be joined in studio by an old friend of the show, Dr. Greg Kaysen, who will let us call him... Dr. Dr. Greg. He's a licensed psychologist in Beverly Hills who specializes in cognitive therapy with individuals and couples, both gay and straight. If you are not a legal immigrant, if you happen to be gay and on top of that live in rural North Carolina, you have a lot of challenges right off the bat. But my new friend, Moises Serrano, met them all head on. Hello, my name is Moises Serrano, and I am the subject of the documentary film titled Forbidden, Undocumented, and Queer in Rural America. So this is just a lightweight subject. (laughs) Right. It's sort of clear in the subtitle, but to you, what is Forbidden about? I think it's a story about belonging and about wanting to contribute back to our society on top of being loved and accepted. As an undocumented immigrant and as a queer man from the South, it was very hard to find my place to feel like I belonged anywhere. Um, I grew up around very homophobic rhetoric. And then, really in my teen years, I started to see kind of this burgeoning anti-immigrant rhetoric. And so I, I grew up really in my formative years never feeling like I had a home, never feeling like I had a place to be. And you arrived in North Carolina mm-hmm. or in the U.S. Mm-hmm. at 18 months old? That is correct. And your mom brought you over with your sisters. Mm-hmm. Yes, Your mom's story of coming over is utterly harrowing. Yeah. And I couldn't do it justice anyway, Mm -hmm. but it just shows to me how much it's worth to people Mm -hmm. to find a better life for their families Mm -hmm. and the risk that your mom was willing to take Mm -hmm. three times before she got here. But you got here first as an infant. Is that correct? Well, all three of us tried to cross at the same time. So we all crossed together. The children are usually separated from the parents. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, as your mom says, it was the idea of seeing you guys that kept her going through this long journey without food and water and everything else. Yes. But this didn't happen that long ago. The events in the film you talk about is one of the key stories in the film is the idea of getting an education when you don't have papers. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of your journey along with opening people's eyes about Mm -hmm. the issue of immigration. 
But, I mean, it really didn't happen that long ago. May <laughs> no. I ask how old you are? I'm 26 now. 26 yeah. now. Yeah. How did, in the middle of all this, the idea of, I'll just be part of a documentary come about? <laughs> it was very serendipitous. I had come out in 2010 as undocumented, out of the shadows, in order to start to humanize this issue. There was a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric and dialogue that was very hurtful and detrimental. And I just thought, this is it. This is my time. This is a secret that I've been holding on to my whole life. And I can't live in fear anymore. So in 2010, I came out of the shadows being one of the first kind of students in the northwestern part of North Carolina to do so. And I was fortunate enough to start organizing with an amazing group of people. And we formed an organization. And I started advocating for the next two years until I met Tiffany Reinard, the director of the film. And it was a very serendipitous moment. I was doing an interview for Wake Forest University. They were collecting stories from immigrants in the, in the surrounding area, and, and it just so happened that Kathy Barnhill, who also shot a lot of the footage with the director, happened to uh, be the ones who were filming that day for Wake Forest. And they asked me questions, and I think they were really in shock about how little they knew about the obstacles that undocumented immigrants face in this country, especially the youth. And from there, we just kept really an open communication and dialogue between all three of us. And Soon enough, they said, hey, we want to follow you around and see what happens. I never once thought that we would be here. We see you in the film, and it's beautifully edited with telling this, your story, but cutting between different audiences mm -hmm. that you're talking to. So obviously, you are out as out can be yeah. and undocumented. Mm -hmm. Did this scare you? Yeah, definitely. For me, it was thinking that I refuse to live in fear anymore. I mean, there was no safe space for us anyway. Why not be out? Why not be as out and vocal as you possibly can be? And actually, we saw that in the earliest years, and still today that is true, that if you are an out, openly undocumented immigrant, and if deportation comes to your door, the community will stand behind you, and they will pressure the local immigration authorities to release you. But if you are not out and no one knows that you're undocumented, how is someone going to fight for you? So it was actually more of an amazing tool to stop deportations coming out than it was detrimental. Were you worried for your family or did you feel that this also was providing them that kind of protection that you're talking about? I hoped that it provided them some kind of protection, but honestly, I didn't know that it would. Yeah. We did receive some dead rats in our mailbox that I had never told my parents about because it was, it was I who usually opened up the mailbox. So the fear was real, but I hoped that the outcome was worth it and it was. How did your family feel about you doing this, not just the documentary, but being so public? It was almost unspoken of. My mother, at first, did not really understand. You know, she was scared for me, understandably so. She had risked her life to bring me here. But I think as they started to see the victories in the organization that we formed and uh, how much of a support system we became to many youth in our part of North Carolina, I think she started to see that we were actually doing really good work, and eventually she decided to come out of the shadows too. And uh, she was featured in our local city's front page news three or four years after I came out. So She's clearly a brave woman. She yeah, was yeah. in the film talking and telling her story. Yes. Um, you came out publicly as undocumented, and at some point you came out publicly as a gay man. Yes. And you knew that you were undocumented from a young age. Did you also know that you were gay from a young age? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My whole life I've known. <laughs> and so which came first for the public? For the public, the immigration status came first. I think being undocumented always feels more urgent to me because literally I could still be deported from this country at any moment. But I also wasn't ready. I had a lot of 
internalized homophobia, right, that, that we all have to work through. And, and it was actually due to the immigration movement that I met amazing undocumented and queer migrants who were also out, you know, and they showed me that you can be both. And so I eventually got comfortable in my own skin. And then really the, the formative event was that I believe in 2013, a pastor decided to really condemn openly the LGBTQ community in North Carolina's largest Spanish newspaper. She basically said, listen, homosexuals will go to hell and just spreading absolute lies about my community. And I thought, this is it. I can't do this any longer. I can't pretend that I'm not gay and I'm not an undocumented immigrant. And this was a pastor who was also advocating for immigrant rights. She was obviously on board with immigrant rights, but not LGBTQ rights. And I thought, oh, oh, honey, if only you knew. (laughs) And so I decided to write an op-ed in response to her. And I told her, listen, I don't think you should be using the Bible to spread fear and hate. You should be using it to teach love. And I see the LGBTQ struggle and the immigrant rights struggle as the same struggle for human equality. And I'm, you know, an undocumented and queer and proud Mexican immigrant. I thought they were going to bury the op-ed in in the middle of the newspaper, but it was actually front page news for them. So (laughs) there was no hiding after that. Did you get a response? No, I never did. Again, this is the largest Spanish-speaking newspaper in the state. I know a lot of my family saw it too, but I never received um, any uh, feedback on it at all. You're listening to IMRU on KPFK Radio. I'm Abby Dees, talking to Moises Terrano. The stereotype is that Latino communities are homophobic. Was that your experience, or did you find acceptance? I personally found acceptance, but I think the stereotype for me is that all communities are homophobic, right? I think I, I, at a very young age, understanding who I was and what I was, I knew that I had to sever ties emotionally with my parents because I knew that there would come a day in my life to where they would kick me out. I mean, that was all really that was known for LGBTQ youth. So I went into this discussion with my father about my sexuality, knowing and being prepared that I was ready to move out. But he's a man of very few words. He said, you know, you don't have to leave. You can stay and you're still my son. And then he went outside and smoked a cigarette. And uh, my mother, she cried. You know, she's a fervently Catholic woman. But she said, regardless of what my church says, regardless of what my family says, I still love you and I want you to be happy. And that was monumental for me. Yeah. Yeah. You talk in the film about the high risk of depression and suicide amongst undocumented people. Of course, we know that the queer community also has this high risk of suicide and depression. What's the connection? Mm -hmm. Why? Right. I didn't understand how they could be so much hatred. I didn't understand how people could hate me so much when they didn't know me. They could hate me just for being gay, and they could hate me for being an undocumented immigrant. And I never understood that, you know. And, um, I mean, imagine living in a world where every single part of your identity is being attacked. There's no other way to put it. And so I felt like I couldn't live any longer. I, I didn't think life was worth living, if this was the life that I was condemned to. I didn't have a pathway towards an education. I was working at a factory from 7 at night to 7 in the morning that uh, was actually a launching pad really also for my activism. I met so many amazing women there who would work at this bagel chip factory from seven at night to seven in the morning for 12 hours, three to four days a week, and then go clean hotel rooms because they were trying to make ends meet for their families. And were most of them undocumented as well? They were. They were. There is a dominant theme in the documentary about the idea of lost potential. Mm -hmm. 
and lost potential very specifically because the immigration policies in this country, and even surprisingly under Obama. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious to know, you are unique in that you obviously had this sort of activist gene or something about (laughs) you. You have this kind of drive that not everybody has. Mm -hmm. What would have happened to you if you hadn't had that drive? I honestly don't know. I'm thinking about that night when there was a bottle of sleeping pills on my nightstand, you know, and I had come home from work at the bagel chip factory and I was so beyond physically exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted, psychologically exhausted. I just wanted to sleep and rest. And that was honestly my excuse. I wasn't taking the sleeping pills so much to end it, but I was taking the sleeping pills because I wanted to rest. I wanted to sleep. And so perhaps I would have taken them. Perhaps not. But I think that's the reality that many undocumented youth face. Oftentimes we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And there have been high rates of suicide among the undocumented youth in our nation. And again, you know, Forbidden was filmed under a supposedly friendly democratic administration, right? This was our reality. And it still is for a lot of us. Let's talk a little bit about some of those specific policies Mm -hmm. and the difficulty in, you know, don't want to sort of retread the film so much, but you talk about the DREAM Act Mm -hmm. and the ideal of the DREAM Act versus the reality. So in North Carolina, and please correct me if I'm Mm -hmm. wrong, there are thousands of people who are eligible under the DREAM Act, but they are required to pay, were required to pay out-of-state tuition prices, Mm -hmm. which is for most people, especially, I would imagine people working at the bagel factory, yeah. the bagel chip factory, you know, would basically be the equivalent of saying you can't go to college. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You talk about something I didn't know about, which was DACA, the Deferred Action mm-hmm. for Childhood Arrivals, which would be like in your case that you are, for all intents and purposes, an American. If you went back to Mexico, it would be a very foreign place for you. Mm-hmm. This is a problematic thing, um, and it sounds like there's a little bit of a sort of Damocles hanging over your head under that, but you can explain it better than I can. What is the problem with our current policies and our paths towards citizenship? Why is this not working? So that's a great question, and, and you did explain it correctly. And back to your point, these immigration, unjust immigration policies were enforced under the Obama administration. So, for example, basically, once you enter the United States without proper authorization, without proper inspection, as it's legally referred to, and you remain in the country for more than six months or more than one year without proper documents, you are barred from adjusting your status. And on top of that, you have to go back to your country and remain in exile for three or ten years, depending on your length of stay, whether it was six months or one year. This was a provision under, actually, the Clinton administration. Bill Clinton signed one of the toughest anti-immigrant laws in, in the history of our nation. So that's why we can't adjust. There's no pathway towards citizenship because we've remained so long inside the country without proper inspection. Congress is the only body of government that can provide a pathway towards citizenship. Not senators, not governors, not the president, right? Congress is gridlocked on this issue. So then what happens? You have 11 million people in limbo. Under the Obama administration, Immigration and Customs Enforcement started partnering with local police officers to start deporting undocumented immigrants. And the reality is that they were not violent criminals. They were mothers. They were fathers. My best friend from Brazil, his name is Lucas, his father was stopped one day in Florida after driving home from work, and he didn't provide a driver's license, and he was deported back to Brazil. And uh, 
a couple of years after that, he suffered a heart attack, and Lucas was never able to see him again. And that story still to this day tears me up inside, you know, because I, I know that I haven't experienced that yet. I have the fortune of my family still being together here. And I had no words for him. I had no words of consolation for him. And so that, that again, still um, brings me to tears. To those people who say, yeah, but you're breaking the laws. You're here. What's the response? Right. I mean, I know well-meaning people who say, yeah, but they're here illegally and they should and they should do it legally. You know. Yeah. Why should yeah. people be given a path for citizenship? Right. I guess is the I question. Think, I think it goes back also to if you get a traffic ticket, mm-hmm. you are also illegal. Right. So yeah. you don't remain <laughs> yeah. in, in that situation for the rest of your life. You go to traffic court, you pay your fine and you resolve your situation. All we want to do is to resolve our situation. There's an obvious need for our labor here. So what we want to do is pay a fine. We are willing, again, to work with the administration to create an accessible pathway towards citizenship for all 11 million undocumented immigrants. We want to make it right. So I think if we stop focusing on, yes, there was a civil infraction from crossing the border to, well, what can we do? What kind of roadmap can we propose? Yeah. And all those people that are working mm-hmm. are paying taxes. They're paying mm-hmm. into Social Security, yeah. but they don't get the benefit of exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. I'm Abby Dees, talking to Moises Terrano, the star of the documentary Forbidden, Undocumented and Queer in Rural America, coming hopefully to a festival near you or a movie theater or a library or something. Could you talk a little bit about your conversation with North Carolina representative Virginia Fox? Yes. Yes. Tell me a little bit about your interaction with her. I thought that was so revealing. It was my first foray really into politics, right? I had just come out as undocumented, so I didn't really know much about what to expect out of these meetings. But she did meet with my organization and my friends personally, and she said, you know, I don't support the DREAM Act, but I support you individually. And I thought, what does that mean? I have no idea what you mean by that. And to this day, she's still staunchly against immigration reform. I mean... It's just so depressing because you hit a roadblock with almost every single politician that you encounter in in rural parts of North Carolina because oftentimes politicians believe that there is an overtly anti-immigrant sentiment, and there can be. But I also believe that there's good in people and that if we could only educate them on this issue, that they would change their opinion. What's the organization? El Cambio. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, the organization that Wooten and my best friend at that time, we started and we stuck with it for the next Four years after I came out, you know, we funded it from our own pockets and we traveled all over the state. Is it still operating? Yeah, yeah. There's still youth uh, engaging. I actually just saw an El Cambio float during the last Independence Day parade in Yadkin mm-hmm. County that said migration is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so this is happening in Yadkin County of all places. One of the things that Virginia Fox said, which I just couldn't believe she said it out loud, was we don't have to listen to you because you don't vote. Oh, right. What did that tell you? <laughs> I don't think it told me anything I already didn't know. <laughs> right? Well, for um, those of us who are a little newer to the subject. <laughs> yeah, she was. Uh, she obviously did not care to listen to us. She did not respect us enough to hear the other side. She was very politicized on the issue. But I said, listen, you're right. We can't vote. But I also personally took my neighbor to the polls and I told her, listen, these are the candidates that are pro-immigrant because a lot of my neighbors, this issue affects them personally. There's 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country. This issue affects many, many more American citizens and American residents. We do have the power to change elections, and change will come slowly, but it will come. Yeah. What are some of the biggest myths that you would like to get rid of 
about immigration policy in this country and immigrants. Right. I think as to why we're here, we're here because we are needed here. I think people have a very isolationist view of the United States policies. I don't think people understand how globalization has spurred coerced mobility across the world. The North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement, if we go into that, has adversely affected you know, Mexican jobs and Mexican farm workers and has forced them to migrate. A lot of the coups in Central America that were you know, backed by the United States has also forced a lot of people to migrate. So I think if only Americans knew our own interventionist history in Latin America and our own detrimental policies that lead to migration, I think people would understand why people want to come. My parents would have loved to have stayed in Mexico. My mother, that's her country. That's the only thing she knows. She left her family, her culture, her language. she can never go back to see them. And she can never go back. But if we stabilize Latin American economies instead of just using them to absorb their resources, people wouldn't want to migrate. They would want to stay and live where they were born. Why do you think anti-immigration rhetoric is so resonant for people Mm -hmm. right now? Because it speaks to fear, that it taps into the fear of the other, Mm -hmm. which we are all really led to buy into, right? We fear the brown, the Muslim, the black. But also as immigrants, we have to start to humanize this issue and to say that we are not as caricatured as you are portraying us. We are not here to do really any damage to society. If anything, we make it better. So it just plays on that hyper-caricatured cartoon that politicians draw of marginalized communities. I think that's a really good point. We can't even have a realistic conversation about Mm -hmm. anything. And I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about LGBT rights. Mm -hmm. You can have real concerns, Mm -hmm. or the reasonable people might disagree about the best way to proceed, but you can't have that conversation without actually knowing who you're talking about. Exactly. I've never seen on mainstream media an undocumented youth speaking about their story on ABC, on CNN, none of these news channels are featuring undocumented youth. And so I think that speaks to the problem that we're caricatured and then we're not allowed the space to reclaim our humanity. It's convenient in a certain way because people are too afraid to come out. Exactly. I'm Abby Dees talking to Moises Serrano. What about the LGBT community? What Mm -hmm. would you like the LGBT community to understand specifically about this issue? Or what's your message? Because you do very proudly identify Mm. as a gay man. Yeah. It was also a struggle. You know, if I can recall one memory, it was during uh, the Trayvon Martin's murder. The jury had decided to not pursue charges. And I was at a overly white gay fundraiser. And I said to them, listen, this just happened. And uh, one of the participants said, oh, that's politics and I don't follow it. I was so shocked. I realized how exclusive middle class or white gay spaces can be. And that's another experience that I, again, had never had. I, I thought this was going to be an accepting and we're welcoming the community. community. Yeah, we're the rainbow. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we understand everything, but it's also very elitist and very exclusive. And I think LGBTQ comes in more shades than white comes in more immigration statuses than just citizen, you know. um, I think, again, we really need to start to talk about being intersectional and being inclusive of other issues besides marriage. I almost hate to say the word Trump. Mm -hmm. In talking to people, the people who may not necessarily have a microphone in front of them, what's the feeling right now in the people that you're talking to about the fact that he is talking the way he talks? Trump does not exist in a vacuum. He came from somewhere. His foundation was built upon the anti-immigrant rhetoric and platform that the Republican Party uh, decided to adopt. 
And so I think this is the culmination of that. And yes, as communities of undocumented immigrants, we're scared. Trump says he's going to build a wall, but the Obama administration has been building the wall for many years. They increased border security funding by 3,600%, I think was the last figure that I saw. What can we do? Something that we can do is to talk about it, to talk about this issue. As undocumented immigrants, we still have to come out. There is still so much fear that exists. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was a program that was announced by the Obama administration, and it basically just took off certain qualifying undocumented youth off of the table for deportation, has been a great program. And it needs to be expanded. But it hasn't because the Supreme Court was gridlocked because we haven't been able to appoint a new justice. I think it's time that we come out of the shadows fearlessly all over the country and then start getting involved politically. Take your neighbors to the polls. Oftentimes also what the root of the problem is is that so much of undocumented immigrants' future is decided at a state level. Tuition prices are decided at a state level. Partnerships like 287G between Immigration Customs Enforcement and local PD officers are decided at a state level. We can't just pay attention to the presidential election. Our future really depends also on state legislatures, and I feel like that's where we need to go. So call your your representatives, your legislators, state and everything. Yeah, yeah. I heard somebody talking about the fact that it is very easy for people to respond against something, and that's always sort of the problem. So we're against immigration, and it's very easy for people to pick up the phone or write a letter Mm -hmm. because they're against it. It is sort of harder to mobilize around being for something. Mm -hmm. So as a result, our representatives and legislators are getting a lot more contact from the against folks. and. I have learned this recently. I'm just going to do my little pitch here. Just pick up the phone and call them. Yeah. Call them the every week. Yeah. Because there are people committed to doing this. Yeah. Just call them every yeah. week for whatever your issue is. Yeah. I cannot sit here and endorse a particular position, but if you care about yeah. something, call Be them. engaged. Call you, them again. <laughs> you, you know, I think that has been my greatest struggle is seeing the lack of engagement from everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's something that saddens me. As a nation, also, we've had great political movements and historical movements in this nation. And where is all of that now? Uh And so it's so easy to just get started. Just pick up the phone or start sharing your story. In the film, the DOMA decision Mm -hmm. comes down, uh, striking down the heart of DOMA. And that meant a lot to you. And I'm wondering why, aside from the obvious that we're queer people and that was good. (laughs) I just never expected it, honestly. I lived very isolated. There are no other queer people that I thought existed in Yatkin County. If you wanted to go to a, a gay meeting, you would have to have a car, have a driver's license, and drive approximately 30 to 45 minutes to the next big city to meet anyone. I don't think people understand the isolation that queer people suffer and face in rural spaces. And then to have the Supreme Court just announce and have your back, I don't know, it was such a humanizing moment. It helped me say, yeah, screw you, I am a human, you know? And I do deserve rights, and I do have the right to marry whoever. And you can't stop me anymore, so. I'd like to ask you about what you're doing right now. I'm a little worried about this giving a spoiler to the film, so I will leave it up to you to tell us where you are, what you're doing, how things are going. Well, um, I can say things are going great. I'm a rising junior at Sarah Lawrence College, and I'm studying public policy with a focus on immigration policy, of all things. And uh, it's been going really well. You know, I think for me, it's still bittersweet. I I know that I'm the lucky one. I got out and I'm obtaining an education and many Latinos do not. 
There are currently 55,000 undocumented youth, according to the Center for American Progress, in North Carolina who do not have a pathway towards an education. You mentioned a statistic about Mm -hmm. sort of, I think you were speaking just for North Carolina, that Mm -hmm. the economic benefit Mm -hmm. of allowing people to just go to school, because if you don't have papers, you're kind of yeah. stuck. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, repeat that of for course. folks who haven't seen the film? Of course. Uh, the Center for American Progress has estimated that if the 55,000 youth in North Carolina go to college, uh, they would contribute back to North Carolina's economy in around $7.3, $7.5 billion in additional revenue to our state. I think this is also why it's so hard to advocate for something. You know, people aren't getting this information. If, as Americans, we gathered the tools necessary that we needed to call our legislators and and ask them, why do you not want $7.5 billion in our state? Please tell me why. It's it's really a no-brainer issue. And so that's the reality that I face, though, that uh, I savor this victory for myself and for my family, but what do I do about everyone else? You know, and uh, this is what I'm doing. Is this your calling? Yeah, I think advocating for social justice issues of any kind is is my calling. You know, I I see so many great injustices in the world. And now that I've become a little bit vocal, I can't stop, you know, Mm -hmm. so. How can people find out information about you and or Forbidden, the film? Please go to our website, www.forbiddendoc.com, on Facebook, Forbidden Doc. My name is Moises Serrano. Also, if you want to find me on Facebook, please reach out. I'm always willing to engage with discussions with anyone. I think change really happens when you start talking to people individually and and start humanizing this issue. And I think we can change the world just through a conversation. I think one of the reasons people don't speak up and don't call their legislators is that it seems so complicated. Yeah. And so, you know, there are all these different acts and we don't know where they are, what's happening to them. And, you know, I think sometimes it's as simple as you don't have to know that. You can just tell your legislator, I want to see more progress that allows people to go to school, whatever Mm -hmm. is on your desk, you know, or gives people an easier path or doesn't separate families, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a Ph.D. in policy to Mm -hmm. express generally how you feel. Definitely not. I'm all about giving back the power to the people, not just undocumented Mm -hmm. immigrants, but as Americans as a whole, I think there's a great injustice when poor people aren't having their voices heard. And as you said, it doesn't take much. Call your representative and say you want in-state tuition for undocumented students. It's as easy as that. It's as easy as that. Okay, now my Spanish is starting to come back. I want to say, okay, to your mother, hola, mama. (laughs) Muchas gracias por todo. Su hijo uh, va... Caminar el mundo. Is it claro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. That was great. <laughs> Muchas gracias She's going to love that. She's going to love that. <laughs> okay, that's it. Yeah. My, my terrible Spanish on the air for all to hear. <laughs> Moises Serrano, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. And I wish you luck with this. And I encourage everyone to try to find Forbidden, Undocumented and Queer in Rural America. There are other films called Forbidden. This is the one you want to Exactly. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) They are. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
And may I add a muy bueno, Abby? Uh, not such a muy bueno. Um, yeah, that was fascinating, th- but what a great subject. Oh, that. yeah. Um, and he is still a complete activist, and the film is still around. It is it is in various uh, theaters around the country, so absolutely go to the website if you're interested in finding out more or just Google Moises Serrano. He is busy. Um, the website, again, is forbiddendoc.com. And I just want to say, yeah, my Spanish... I thought I was saying your son is going to change the world, but I think I said your son is going to walk around the world. Well, it sounded great. Thank you. (laughs) Still to come, Beverly Hills psychologist Dr. Greg, yes, our own Dr. Greg, will hold our collective hand and walk us through the holidays, the election, and whatever else comes up. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Woodstock and beyond. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Woodstock was the monumental music and arts festival that almost didn't get off the ground. When the show's producers failed to secure a location, it was Elliot Tiber who came to the rescue. He secured a permit and persuaded a local dairy farmer to have the festival on his 600-acre farm in Bethel, New York. Woodstock was billed as an Aquarian Exposition, Three Days of Peace and Music. Held August 15th to 18th, 1969, it drew a half a million people, making it arguably the largest music festival ever. With performing icons like Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, and Jimi Hendrix, its lineup was one of the most legendary in music history. After Woodstock, Elliot Tiber made his way to Europe, where he became a successful television comedian, writer of plays and musicals, and as he put it, a happy gay man who found love. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Kelly Norse. Hello, I'm Tab Hunter, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM. 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, and streaming online at kpfk.org. sweet to be a little butterfly just winging over things and nothing deep inside nothing going going wild in you you know you're slowing by the riverside or floating high and blue through everything and then away again with the taste of dust in your mouth all day but no need to know like sadness you just sail away Just don't need it in my life.
would actually be a good show. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. That song coming out of break was I Don't Do Sadness by Paxton. And speaking of sadness, or perhaps speaking of overcoming sadness, changing sadness, something you'll Working tell us. Through Working sadness. through your sadness. <laughs> we have in studio one of our favorite people who's a old... Not old. A friend of long standing. <laughs> Sad and old. For IMRU, <laughs> Dr. Greg Kaysen, who is a cognitive behavioral therapist in LA. And um, you might have also seen him on uh, Bravo's LA Shrinks. Welcome, Dr. Greg. Hi, it's good to be here. Good to be here. So, can you tell us, for those of us who aren't that well versed, what cognitive therapy is as opposed to? Anything else? Yeah, yeah. Cognitive therapy is the applied science, the therapy applied science of changing your thoughts and feelings to help you manage your feelings and to achieve your goals. Perfect. Bottom line. So (laughs) one of my understandings is that there's less emphasis on what we sort of normally think of in therapy, like going and digging way deep and talking for five years about your family. Or yeah. does that happen? No, that's right. Well, we do some. We don't. Well, we don't talk for five years, but we do dig. We do dig. We efficiently dig, and we have some methodology to do that. But we probably don't spend as much time as say some other forms of therapy, because what we try to do are take the lessons from the past and then apply them to what's going on today. So sometimes those lessons can be very negative and cause you to do very bad things or to do things that screw up your life in the present, or you have lessons from the past that actually could be aiding you more, and that we want to emphasize more. So what we use the past for is more for learning and compassion for who you are today. And then we actually look at a technology to help you change what's going on today. Um, The holidays are upon us. Yes. And uh, (laughs) we've made it through Thanksgiving, most of us at least. Yeah. I'm sure (laughs) a few battle scars have come out of Thanksgiving. Saturday Night Live like pays their bills with jokes about family dinners in the holidays. But why is it so fraught? Uh, that's a good one. I think it's basically why holiday dinners are so fraught is because people come together and they relive their old family dynamics. I mean, it's just as simple as that. And plus, unfortunately, holiday dinners usually include things like alcohol, which just fuel the negative stuff. And people that we've been trying to avoid all year long, then we are forced to see at holiday dinners. So that's all, you know, that's just holiday dinners. The gay issue, though, is kind of an interesting one because unfortunately, and I've always thought this was such a mistake, a lot of gay people choose holiday dinners and holiday gatherings to to say and announce certain things. It's convenient. Yeah, it's very efficient. It's very convenient. Everyone's there. You don't have to write a lot of thank you notes afterwards. I mean, it's just all very right there for you. But the problem is, is that it's somebody else's show. It's the family's show. It's not our personal show. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people mix it up and think it should be their personal stuff. Stage. I think what holidays are, at least my perspective of it, is it's where we come together and we all sort of share this equally. And that's how holidays can work best together. But I think maybe like I've I've had certain relatives that I just have to steer clear of at the holidays because they like to be the star of the show. Oh, it's that competing <laughs> diva issue. Yeah, maybe it's that. Maybe it's just that I don't like to be the other diva on the stage, maybe. <laughs> Well, now, because the, the holidays are taking place during a particularly fraught political season, yeah. um, I'm sure we've got a lot of Thanksgiving horror stories. How can we avoid repeating that for our next upcoming holiday, whatever it is? You know, I, I've already addressed this uh, with a lot of clients of mine. I mean, this is something a lot of people are dealing with. I'd say, number one, 
that if you think that going home for the holidays is actually going to cause you more pain and suffering, I'd say this would be the year to skip. Uh, every year we can we can we can handle a year of staying away from our families if they're just going to try to open wounds, because that won't do anybody any good. Some people I've noticed a lot of people that uh, let's say around the presidential election uh, who are on the side of the winner are being sore winners right now and sort of. I, I am shocked about by this. I shouldn't be, but I am sort of shocked by this. It is shocking. Sort of a lack of grace, graciousness or Definitely, something. and it's sort of rubbing salt in the wounds of other people, like told you so, nah, nah. And it's a little juvenile. So, one, Hi, if you have relatives like that, which I do, unfortunately, <laughs> I, you just stay away from them. And number two is that if you... Uh, if you do try to, oh, I just forgot the other point. This is me having a cold. I just forgot the other point I was going to make. <laughs> but you know, that's that's just one. That's let okay. You know I that forget another point all the time. make other point. You know, we <laughs> goof. Yeah. We, if you come, if it comes back to you, you can I like will. interrupt and say that was my other point. Uh, what is coming up in your like right now this time in your with your patients that maybe you haven't seen in previous years or not as much of or. Are, are you noticing anything different? Uh, you mean around the, the election? Round, yeah. Uh, I have, except with the exception of 9-11, I have never seen one after the other person coming in and being absolutely distraught as much as they are. It's a uniform, uniformed, uh, or, or you, a lot of people are feeling exactly the very same thing, is that they're coming in and feeling distraught and wondering what happened to our world, what happened, why did this happen? And then each and every person sort of has their own personal threat that's going on. Just like the interview you just did, that person felt a threat to his immigration status or being in the country, but everyone feels different threats uh, about what's going on, whether it's being gay and the fact that Mike Pence is the vice president, or, you know, it could be a number of issues that are going on, but people feel scared. Now, some not to get back to the dinner, because I had one more yeah. question about that. Sometimes in a family discussion, and it's always hard to admit this, but sometimes you are the person who's about to become the problem. When yes. you feel that bubbling up mm. inside, how do you tamp that down. Thank you. for <laughs> Thank you. Or not tamp it down. <laughs> well, you could. I mean, I think I, I always tell people that if you have an announcement to make to your family, please do so 24 hours before the family event or 24 hours after the family event and do so in a small group where you have their undivided attention. Don't do it when everyone's trying to share a single thing. So one thing I would do with that person who feels the need to announce something and it has to be that weekend is to make a plan that they can rely upon to if maybe do it wait two days before the event or two days after, maybe to give people a chance to decompress and they can reassure themselves as the dinner's happening that I'm going to announce this on the 27th, et cetera, And et cetera. this is, you know, and I, I would imagine what a lot of people are feeling is that they need to talk to their families about how they feel about this election. They feel that, like, they can't keep that quiet. And absolutely, if you do need to talk to your family about how you feel about the election, keep it to feelings, believe mm. it or not. So we can all connect around feelings. You can't argue with a feeling. You can argue with a fact. And one, one thing we all heard during this election is this has become a sort of a post-fact or post-truth world where facts don't really mean as much and that people are divided in their belief about facts. 
But we can't argue with a person's feelings. And, so, and if you say to somebody, look, I feel scared about what's happening. Well, they say you shouldn't feel scared. Well, you're negating my feelings and my experience. I'm just telling you I feel scared. So please respect that. What are some of the other tools that you typically give uh, patients, clients, um, who are going to go into sort of a difficult family thing? We all have difficult families. That's just the nature of family. But some some things are more difficult than others. Uh, Can you think of some examples of kind of tools that people can use? Uh, Well, I mean, it, it depends on what kind of tool you're looking for. The number one goal you need to have in talking to your family is to manage your own emotion because emotions what causes us to do the most crazy things if we're feeling rage we're likely to throw things and to yell epithets and to you know just be that unruly person who needs to be escorted out of our grandmother's house Um, if we feel depression and sadness then maybe we'll go retreat into the bedroom and take pills or drink too much so or if we're feeling a great deal of anxiety same thing so we need to learn to manage emotions so when we look at tools, one thing we look at are emotional management skills. Now, I can't give you the full plethora of emotional management skills because it's just too many. (laughs) But one is, uh, you know, just what I said earlier, it's one, don't put yourself in that situation. But two, if you do put yourself in that situation, put yourself around people that you trust and love and that you can share with and be with. There are always those people. So unless you have a gathering of only two other people, generally you can you can uh, segment off with someone who's more along your belief system. Maybe it's a cousin or maybe it's a husband or wife of someone in your family. But that would be a good thing to do. So control your environment. Also eat before you go, believe it or not. If you really want to manage your emotions, eat before you go and don't touch alcohol. Those two very easy things that to do. That seems so simple. Doesn't it and seem simple? yet. Would it be a holiday without <laughs> alcohol? Not in my world. Yeah. Well, I would save the alcohol till you got home and then drink to your heart's content. That Thank would be you. my advice. Yes. <laughs> One of the other challenges that it really comes up a lot for LGBTQ people uh, dealing with their families is religion. And, you know, and we certainly, no one, I think, wants to say your religion is wrong or, you know, you again, you can say how you feel about that. But what comes up around the holidays in your practice? Yeah, you know, it's, it's another interesting thing to me uh, is not that people usually don't try to shove their religion down your throat. That's the people are very respectful in general with that. But I've noticed some of the worst people are people who are atheist or agnostic try to convince people who are religious not to be religious. That's just <laughs> as crazy people. Let us just go to our go to our individual corners and not try to convince other people of a belief system. Again, we're always trying to Often the biggest uh, mistake we make on the holidays is trying to turn it into our show rather than it respecting the show that's going on. But um, that seems to be a theme that you're talking about. I, is I, I it is not to. about you all the time? Yeah, I guess so. I mean that I, I didn't mean to do that today, but yeah, let's all get off our pedestals and like do a little kumbaya here because that's maybe the most important thing. And maybe that is one thing that the election sort of is happening too. Is that I think we want to come together. We want to share with other people. We want to be with other people who think like us, but it's almost forbidden. I've heard so many people say, therapists alike, oh, we should all try to understand each other, et cetera, et cetera. And I went, 
BS. I was about to cuss. Sorry. <laughs> I. It's such BS to say that right now until people heal. It's okay to be around people that think just like you because like helps like. You know, when we misery loves miserable company, and so we need to be around other people who are miserable right now. And that'll, oddly enough, help us heal our wounds so that we can come back out and be together. But also we need to band together to make sure that our world persists. We're, you know, we're all afraid now that we're going to be made to wear pink triangles and get numbers tattooed on our arms. That won't happen if people stand up. You know, it won't happen. So... So um, you were speaking of fear earlier, and this was something I read, and you had mentioned that you had spoken on it, that there's a segment of the population that we usually think of as having the least to fear, which is middle-aged white men, and apparently they're beginning to drop like flies. Yeah, this is really interesting, and I I was so surprised to find this. And this was based on CDC statistics. It's not like I went out and personally looked at all the suicide notes of all these people that died. This was looking at actual data that that the, the government has gathered. We're seeing mortality rates decrease in every population with the exception of middle class white people. I mean, I'm sorry, middle-aged white people. What am I saying? Middle-aged white people, and that's working class and middle class mm-hmm. specifically. But what we see the biggest, we see the only thing that seems to help them is education. So education seems to moderate the effect, but it doesn't obliterate it. So the most educated still have an increase in mortality rate in general, but um, but the but it doesn't get rid of it completely. But people who are high school educated or less are dying at a super high rate, much higher than any other ethnicity um, or any other age group. So we're seeing this rate increase, and we're seeing it in all the behaviorally mediated, of course, suicide. Suicide's taken a huge jump, something like it's about one-third, uh, about about a 35% increase in men and about a 48% increase in women in, in these middle-aged white people. And we're not seeing it in other groups. And also we're seeing a, a super high increase in poisonings, which is primarily opiate addiction overdose. So that's from people with chronic pain issues, which is primarily behaviorally mediated or psychologically mediated. And then we also see uh, alcoholism. From, uh, we see cirrhosis from alcoholism. We also see diabetes, which is from eating poorly. So we're seeing all these populations going up and in the highest rates are in the rural areas. So we need to understand that, wait a minute, there's a group out there who's completely self-destructing at this moment. And yeah. it's scary. That's interesting. And that's, of course, a demographic that was so important in this election. It, unfortunately. I mean, yeah. I actually wonder, and I hate to put any sort of bright light on this, but I wonder if those statistics will begin to fall now that that particular group has, is feeling empowered. I don't know. I think they might be feeling empowered right now. But I think that one thing that this election gave them was was they got their voice heard, this particular group. But they... As we are already seeing, their voice may not be heard for much longer. Uh, maybe their interests won't be represented. I hope their re- interests are represented. I hope people start to look at this group. We've we've maligned this group for such a long time. It's so bad to be white, middle age. You know, you're the problem. You're the people in power, et cetera, et cetera. And all these people who were you know, in poverty and not being able to do anything, living in rural areas alone, their wife divorced them. It's in the men's case, you know, it's just, you look at these things in the high suicide rates. Um, 
that they they are not only not on top, they're quite literally at the bottom. Well, it does make you wonder if there is a more, I mean, this is obviously this is a bigger conversation, but people yeah. are talking about this, is that is there a more nuanced way to address this? Um, you know, and we're going to be talking about this a lot in the coming years, I, I think, especially with this presidency. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you very quickly, yeah. uh, cognitive behavioral yes. therapy to a lot of older LGBT people sometimes gets them nervous because it was used as, well, some people doing this in the 60s uh, did conversion therapy under that banner. And I wonder if you could just speak to that briefly. No, I mean, I could tell you even now there are people who use CBT to do conversion therapy. There are a couple left in the world. Um, it, but it's, it, thank God, the profession itself disavows those people. Yeah. Not only the American Psychological and American Psychiatric Association, National Association of Social Work, but also CBT organizations in general, I mean, specifically. So this is all looked down upon. But yes, it, CBT has a bad rap because it did do that kind of thing. It did try to change people's sexual orientations. Um, and we also saw this in some other forms of therapy as well. And I think it's sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater that, you know, yeah, they, they, this is this is essentially the bathwater. This is bad stuff. It was bad stuff. And there are other bad examples I could give to you about CBT. But we, we now know that we can remove those negative things and start to look at more positive things. Even we've taken years to stop treating fetishes oh. instead of helping people just accept them. Like, who cares? If, <laughs> it really bugs me. I mean, it's like, who cares if someone's into fetishes? feathers or, you know, different things. Does it make you happy? It just doesn't. I don't understand why that needs to be pathologized, but yet we love to pathologize sex and sexuality. We love it. That was a very interesting (laughs) note to wrap up on. Um, Suicide fetishes. (laughs) Do you have a favorite therapist joke you want to, so we can leave on a high note? Uh, I don't. Uh, Oh, my uh, God. Wait, how many therapists does it? But take? we're getting a note from the control room. It's no time for jokes. <laughs> <laughs> no time for jo- how about how about a website or information about you? If you can go wanna... to drgreg.com. It's d r g r e g dot com, and you can find out about me. And you could send me on the contact form if they want to ask me a question. Great, Perfect. Dr. Greg. Thank you so much for coming. We always thank love to you have you for, here for seeing through the pain of your cold and, and yes. showing up live. Thank you. We appreciate you. that. I appreciate you guys sticking with me. Well, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, board op, Lizette Tapia, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. You can find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. We'll close with an optimistic song from out gay singer-songwriter Josh Zuckerman called Got Love. Good night. Good night. Let's speak the words to the parents that will preach to their kids that are freaks. Just because they're different doesn't really matter what they say, what they see. All the children in the mirrors of their own society. Black, white, doesn't matter. Gay, straight, thin, or fat. When love is the answer, got no more feel, got love. Speak the words to the
る Gay straight thin or fat When love is the answer Got no more feels Got love rich Pull us into your tall short See right through you When you live in fear Brings me to tears Get love that white Doesn't matter Gay straight thin or fat When love is the answer Got no more feels Got love rich Pull us into your tall short See right through